your Bibles to 2 Samuel 6. You can turn in your Bibles there. 2 Samuel is in your Old Testament. It's before the book of Psalms, so it's kind of in the first third of your Bibles or so. Before the Chronicles, before the Kings, 2 Samuel chapter 6. 2 Samuel chapter 6. And let's go ahead and, and pray and ask God's blessing on our time and his word right now together. So let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you, Lord, and praise you because you are good, because you are worthy. Lord, you are worthy of all of our worship. You are worthy of our love. And certainly you are worthy of our attention. And God, we, we thank you for the, the fun we've been able to have today. And I know... Uh, fun sometimes can, can wear us out also, so I pray that you'd give us all energy and sharp minds and soft hearts. And Lord, even, even earlier as we were singing about you being a sovereign God who turns the hearts of kings and nations, Lord, even, even now as we begin, we, we want to think of our brothers and sisters on the other side of the world in Ukraine who are, are facing dangers and threats. We pray that you'd be merciful and protect them, and that you'd even use what is going on for your glory that the gospel would shine forth. Father, as we turn to your word now, we pray that you would help us, that you would help us to see you as you are. Not as we think you are, not as we want you to be, but to see you as you truly are, that we would have hearts that are humbled before you. We need your help for that, and we thank you that you're a gracious God who loves to give help to your children. We pray these things in your son's name and for his glory. Amen. Well, hopefully you have your Bibles open to 2 Samuel 6. We're going to look at just the first nine verses tonight of that chapter, and then we're going to look at the second half, the rest of that chapter, tomorrow morning together. And um, to start off, I, I want to share with you a, a quote from an ancient Chinese philosopher. Yes, I like to start with quotes from old dead guys, I guess, but... Uh, there's a Chinese philosopher from the 6th century B.C., a long time ago, by the name of Lao Tzu. Oh, all right. He said, there is no greater danger than underestimating your opponent. There's no greater danger than underestimating your opponent. This is decent advice. Right, whether you're uh, thinking of your opponent in sports or in a war or in family time games uh, or, in my experience, in math contests. So back in sixth grade, so my wife Abijah and I, we've known each other a long time. We grew up in the same church. Back in sixth grade, uh, she and I were at different schools and we participated in a, in a citywide math contest. I'm that cool. And um, we were all in this room with a bunch of students. We're all taking this math test competition thing, and uh, I finished quickly, because I was a math whiz. And I was, uh, same, yeah, hey, <laughs> me and Elijah right here. And uh, I finished super fast, I was confident, I got this in the bag, and so as on my way out, I see her, and I'm like, ha ha, you slow poke, all that kind of stuff. In uh, the Lord's sense of humor, of course, I end up marrying her years later, but uh, I'm laughing at her on my way out. I underestimated my opponent, and an opponent she was. And uh, when the results came out, um, she placed second place. 
by one point. Who did she lose to? Not me. <laughs> I, I was a few points away from third place. I still remember this to this day. Isn't that sad? Sixth grade, you'd think I'd forget, but I don't. Uh, she got second place. I didn't place, and I had underestimated my opponent. Yes. I think you did. I probably did. You know, the Lord says in his word, pride goes before the fall. I learned that at a young age. Still learning that now. So I underestimated my opponent. I underestimated her. Uh, but, you know, there is something worse than just underestimating your opponent. Lao Tzu, that's a wise saying, but it's not always correct. There's something worse than underestimating your opponent. What's far worse than that, the greatest danger by far is underestimating God. It's underestimating who God is. In fact, the, the danger is even greater if you underestimate God who is also your opponent. If you have not surrendered your life to him, it says in the word of God that we are his enemies. But, but even as his redeemed children, it is still a serious mistake to underestimate our heavenly father. Like a compass works, uh, your estimation, your view of God sets the direction for your entire life. And if your compass, if your view of God is off just by a little bit, eventually you end up far off the path of life. What you think about God, how you view God is huge, is huge. And our, our error when we think about God is never that we think too highly about God. It's never, that, it's never the case that you think, oh, God must be this amazing. And actually, no, he was just a, a step lower. That's never the case. When we have an, a wrong view of God, it's always that our view of God is too low. That God is always greater than we can imagine. And still yet, we're like, okay, well, I'll imagine that's even greater. No, no, he's still higher than that. He is always greater than we can imagine. We always think too lowly of God. And we tend to wander into this dangerous territory of underestimating our God. And so tonight, I want to draw our attention to the Word of God in 2 Samuel 6 to recalibrate our view, to recalibrate our thinking, to lift up our view of God. I want you to see God as He is. And so to do that, I want to walk us through tonight the first nine verses of 2 Samuel 6. And again, next morning, tomorrow morning, we will look at the second half of this chapter. But for tonight, I want us to see three humbling truths about God's holiness, three humbling truths about God's holiness. And the first is this, God's holiness demands reverence. God's holiness demands reverence. Uh, look with me as I read verses one to five. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baalei Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. Let me 
Let me pause there. We're dropping into the middle of Israel's history, and so you might need some background to understand what's going on. This is Old Testament. For some of us, this is kind of new and uncharted territory. So let me catch you up to speed about what's going on here. David is finally anointed as king in the chapter right before ours, after being chased by Saul for years. And uh, after he establishes Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, he decides to move the Ark of God to Jerusalem. And, and that's a huge deal. And to help you understand the importance of this moment, you need to understand what the Ark of God was. How many of you guys have seen Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark? It's an old, old movie. Yeah, see, that's a handful of you, a handful of you. That's, that's, that's great. That's fun. Uh, that, they, they actually had a decent depiction of what the Ark looked like. The Ark was a wooden box. It was covered with gold inside and out. Inside the ark were the Ten Commandments, a jar of manna, Aaron's rod, and on top of the ark was this lid called the mercy seat made out of solid gold. And on the mercy seat were these two golden cherubim. Cherubim are angels, uh, but they're not like the, the chubby, baby, fat, naked angels that kind of float with wings, you know? Those are not what cherubim are. Cherubim are probably, as far as we can tell, the, the highest order and class of angels. They were warrior angels. They were fierce warriors. And these two golden cherubim are on either side of the mercy seat, facing each other with their wings outstretched on this mercy seat, covering the mercy seat. And if you trace the appearance of cherubim in the Old Testament, you'll see that cherubim are, are, are usually present when the, when the glory of God is there. The cherubim, in a sense, proclaim and guard the glory of God. They represent the inapproachability and transcendence of God. That he is too high, too holy, too great for us. That God is completely above and beyond his creation. And, and you cannot come near because you and I are sinful and God is holy. That's, that's what it means when you see cherubim. Remember, uh, Adam and Eve, they were in a garden, remember? And and. It says in Genesis 3, Genesis 3 that God walked in the garden with Adam and Eve. And it was this paradise. It was beautiful. It was amazing. And when Adam and Eve sinned, God had to kick them out of the garden. And at the entrance of the garden, it says that he placed cherubim with flaming swords. They had to go out. And at the entrance now were cherubim with flaming swords because they couldn't come back in. Because the, the cherubim were guarding the presence and glory of God from sinful man. Uh, there's a children's little story Bible that I like to read with my kids called The Garden, the Curtain, and the Cross that talks about this. And, and it, it, it uses these words. It, it calls the angels like a big keep out sign. The angels were like a big keep out sign. And, and, and it says in there, God wanted us to know that it is wonderful to live with him. It's wonderful to live with God, but because of your sin, you can't come in. When you see the cherubim, what it's saying is because of your sin, you can't come in. So, so the cherubim on the mercy seat on top of the ark were there to show that the ark represented the very presence of God. When you see this golden box, this is the presence of God. The holy, infinite God is present and the cherubim are guarding the presence of God because we are sinful. That's why verse two said that the Lord is enthroned above the cherubim because in a sense, the Lord dwelt there. It was his throne. And because God's presence dwelt above the ark, there had to be caution and reverence 
They had to show reverence to this ark. You couldn't just leave it there for everyone to see or else everyone would die. God said, you cannot look upon the ark. You can't touch it or you will die. The ark had to be tucked away inside this tent called the tabernacle, which was like a sort of like a mobile temple. They you know, were wandering around in the, in the wilderness for 40 years and they would carry around this tent that they could set up and take down, set up and take down. So this mobile tent called the tabernacle is, is where the the ark would be kept. And it was inside the very innermost part. There were all these sections in the tabernacle to keep you away from the ark. Because it's wonderful to live with him, but because of your sin, you can't come in. So the, the ark representing the very presence of God was cut off from the people and there was a curtain in front of it. And guess what was woven into the curtain? Pictures of? Cherubim. Cherubim. Because of your sin, you can't come in. No one could go in there except the high priest and only once a year to make sacrifices. And so this is the ark. The ark was supposed to be the center point of all Israelite worship. Uh, once a year, the high priest would go in and sprinkle blood before the ark of the covenant. This was a big deal. All true worship of God was centered around the ark. The presence of God was there. So the ark is a big, big deal. And the ark had been essentially forgotten during the time of Saul. It was left off at some other town. But David, when he became king, David, a man after God's own heart, he brought the ark into Jerusalem. He's bringing the ark of God into Jerusalem. And this is a big deal. This is a big deal. That's why 30,000 people are with David to move this golden box from point A to point B, not because it was that heavy, although it was made of gold. It's because it was such a big deal. There were, it, this was a parade of parades and a party and everything. They were celebrating with all kinds of instruments and they're walking towards Jerusalem. But verse six, all of a sudden something happens. Look with me at verse six. It says, and when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it for the oxen stumbled. The ark is being pulled along on this cart. The oxen stumble, the cart tips, and the ark looks like it's about to fall. So Uzzah, being a, uh, an Israelite who wants to honor God, he reaches out and touches the ark to steady it so it doesn't fall on the ground. He didn't know that that would be the last thing he would ever do. He didn't know that would be the last thing he'd ever do because look at what happened next. Verse 7, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. I don't know if this is a new story for you. Perhaps you have heard this in the Bible before, perhaps you've read this, or perhaps you never have, and this is the first time you've heard this story, and you're thinking, this preacher guy is crazy. Why is he reading this to us? It's because I want you to come face to face with the God who is holy. God killed Uzzah there. He struck him down. There was no warning. There was no second chance. God immediately struck him dead on the spot. And imagine the chaos. There's 30,000 people and there's all kinds of cymbals and, and musical instruments playing tambourines. And all of a sudden, everything stops. There's this commotion, this chaos. There's this confusion. Uzzah did something. Something happened. There's somebody dead. 
What just happened? This was supposed to be a time of celebration, and we have a man dead next to the ark. You see, God's holiness demands reverence. God's holiness demanded reverence. So something that represents the presence of God, the ark, also had to be handled with reverence. And I think you can understand this. I mean, if you love someone, if, uh, if you love something that represents them, that person that you love, then, then, then you're, you're going to handle that with care. If there's somebody that you love and you have a picture of them, you're going to treat that picture with care. You're not going to throw it down or throw darts at it. The ark represented God, and so they were to handle that with fear and trembling, with reverence. God's holiness requires reverence. And and this second point also relates to that, that when God's holiness is not reverenced, then God's holiness requires punishment. And that's the second humbling truth about God's holiness, that God's holiness not only demands reverence, but it requires punishment. Uzzah was struck dead because he had not shown the proper reverence due to God's holy presence. How do we make sense of this? I mean, we live in a time that is very casual, that we don't show a lot of reverence for a lot of things. You know, here in America, there's the freedom of the press, so no matter who the president is, they're always going to be criticized. We don't live in a time that shows a lot of reverence for a lot of things. So how do we make sense of this? This, this is kind of strange to us. This is one of those passages in the Old Testament that makes Modern people today squirm and feel uncomfortable. If, if we could, we would probably prefer to take passages like this out of the Bible. This doesn't line up. I mean, let's, let's just be honest. For many of us, this doesn't line up with how we think about God. Maybe you're thinking, I don't believe God would ever do something like this. I don't, I don't believe God would ever do something like that. And, and when we say that, what we're really saying is, I would never do anything like that, and therefore God shouldn't either. God says to the wicked in Psalm 50, 21, you thought that I was one like yourself. God says to the wicked, you thought I was just like you. You know, it's, it's, it's been said, uh, God made us in his own image and we've been trying to return the favor ever since. We try to remake God to be just like us where he acts the way that we would want to act. He would do the things that we think are right. Friends, I, let me challenge you with something. If If the God of the Bible never challenges you, if the God of the Bible never offends you, if the God of the Bible never requires something of you that makes you feel uncomfortable, then either you are already perfect or you are worshiping yourself. The God of the Bible is altogether different than us. So instead of bending the Bible or our idea of God to match our preferences, we need to allow the Bible to correct our wrong views of God. And and so first, let me just give you some background here. In Numbers 4, earlier in the Old Testament, God gave instructions for the care of the ark. There were only a certain family of people from Israel that were supposed to handle the holy things, including the ark. And, And before they could go and carry it, they had to go in and cover it up because you weren't supposed to see it. If you looked at it, you were supposed to die. You couldn't touch it with your hands. You covered it up and then carried it with poles. God said, you must carry the ark with poles, not put it on a cart. But in 2 Samuel 6, they didn't carry the ark with poles. Instead, they put it on a cart. It was more convenient, but it was directly disobedient. 
And if Uzzah was able to reach out and just touch the ark, it sounds like it probably wasn't covered. It, it likely was just in plain view of everybody, which in that case, God would have been completely justified to strike everybody dead who had laid eyes on it. Someone might object, maybe you're thinking this, but I, I don't get it. I, I'm reading this. I thought God was loving. I thought God was forgiving. And yes, he is. He is, but God is also holy. In fact, he is holy, holy, holy. Even the angels who have never sinned, the angels who have never sinned, they even have to shield their eyes from the full, from the full brightness and radiance of the glory of God because of his holiness. You see, the, the inapproachability of God was, was meant to show and teach us uh, the inapproachability of the ark was meant to show us that God is holy. He is set apart. When we say that God is holy, it, it means two things, and they're related. The one is that God is utterly separate. He's utterly separated. He's transcendent. He's utterly different than us. It's not like, you know, you've got, um, you know, small amoeba, and then you've got like a little worm, and then you've got, you know, a cat. Oh, cats are evil, so let's leave that out. Dogs, and then, you know, monkey, then you've got man, and then you have God kind of all on a scale. That's not what it's like, God is completely separate, completely different, of a different order, of a different sort. He is a cut above. There's no, there's no comparison to God. He's above. He's beyond. He's separate. That's one way that holiness uh, should be understood. But also it can mean that he's utterly pure and righteous. He's utterly pure and righteous. He is holy. He cannot sin. He cannot even be tempted to sin. Instead, he hates sin and he must punish sin. And so God's holiness demands our reverence and it also requires punishment when we are not showing him reverence. Friends, you, you might think that, yeah, I, 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 I honor God, I respect God, I fear God, but myself included in this, none of us, none of us, sees God as holy as he truly is. None of us has a high enough view of God. We all underestimate God's holiness. Uh, maybe you've heard of the prophet Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah, when he saw the Lord seated on the throne, he didn't say, wow, God is awesome. He didn't say, whoa, lucky me. When Isaiah saw the Lord seated on the throne, he said, woe is me. Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips, and for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He says, I am undone. I am lost. I am a goner, because I have seen the holiness of God. And he was a prophet who spoke the words of God. He said, I have unclean lips. When I actually see who God is, what he is like, I am a wretch. I am lost. God is so holy that to look at God or even to touch his throne, the ark, is punishable by death. The, the ESV, the, 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 the version I've been reading out of, says that God struck Uzzah down for his error in verse 7. The, the New American Standard Bible says that Uzzah's sin was one of irreverence. R.C. Sproul put it this way, that, that Uzzah might have thought that the ark would be defiled by the dirt, right? You know, if you're Uzzah and you see the cart you know, tipping over and the ark's about to fall. Maybe Uzzah thought, oh, if the ark falls in the dirt, that's really bad. That would defile the ark of God. And so, so he tried to steady it. But 
he assumed the dirt would be worse than his hand. Uzzah was wrong. The dirt is not what would have defiled the ark. It was the touch of sinful man that would defile it. The dirt, the dirt doesn't disobey God. The dirt does not commit cosmic treason against God. Man does. That's why man was forbidden from touching the ark. God's laws were clear. It shouldn't have been on a cart. It should have been covered. It should have been carried with poles. If Uzzah could stand here today, he would say to us, my punishment was just. It was just. Don't underestimate God like I did. Yes, the Lord is gracious. He is forgiving. He's merciful. He's loving. But, but his grace, his mercy, his love, they are gifts. They are gifts that God is free to give or free not to give. If God is God, he is free to give mercy and grace or free not to give it. Nobody ever deserves grace and mercy. You cannot demand it. He doesn't owe it to anybody. He shows mercy. Our God is a God who overflows with mercy. And and the problem is, that because of that, because of how good he is, we sinners, we can take his mercy and goodness for granted so quickly. We take it for granted. And again, I've been quoting R.C. Sproul a lot, uh, but, but let, me, let me tell you a story that he, that he shares in his book, The Holiness of God. He, he tells the story about an Old Testament class he taught. It was a, it was a college class. Uh, it was mainly freshmen. So these were first-year students in college. He was teaching them an Old Testament class. He explained the requirements for the class, the assignments, and the expectations. And he said, hey, this class has three papers. There's three term papers due this semester, okay? And I will not accept any late work. He told them it must be turned in on these dates. I will not accept any late assignments. There's no extensions unless you're sick or unless there's a death in your immediate family. Late papers will receive an automatic F. He had 250 students. Well, the first paper was due, and on that day, he received 225 papers. So 25 students didn't turn in papers. And they were terrified, and they profusely apologized. They made all kinds of excuses, and, and oh, we're new to college. We didn't plan our time well, and they begged for an extension. And so he gave them an extension. He was merciful, but he reminded them, the next paper is due, and I will not make any more exceptions. And of course, the students were thankful, they were relieved, and they, they solemnly promised, we'll turn our next paper in on time. Paper number two comes due. Paper number two comes due. 200 students turn in their papers. So 50 didn't turn it in this time. They weren't as terrified as they were the first time, but they were a bit nervous. And they said, oh, we're sorry. They, they made more excuses about this and that. They begged for an extension. They promised it will never, ever, ever, ever happen again. So Professor Sproul was merciful, but he warned them, this is the last time. This is the last time there'd be no extensions for the last paper. You guys seem like a smart bunch. What do you think happened with the third paper? What do you think, Elijah? 175 people turned it in. You have more faith in humanity than you should, my friend. <laughs> Only 150 students turned in their paper. You got it. I heard the number, right? I heard it. Only 150 turned in their paper this time. 100 did not. 
And nobody was terrified. Nobody was even nervous. When he asked where their papers were, one of them said, oh, don't worry, prof. We're working on them. We'll have them to you in a couple of days. No sweat. Listen to what R.C. Sproul says happened. This is how he describes what happened. He said, I picked up my lethal black grade book and began taking down names. Johnson, do you have your paper? No, sir, came the reply. F, I said as I wrote the grade in the book. Muldaney, do you have your paper? No, sir, was the reply. I marked another F in the book. The students reacted with unmitigated fury. They howled in protest, screaming, you fill in the blank, that's not fair. That's not fair. Ooh. I looked at one of the howling students. You think it's not fair? Yes, he growled in response. I see. It's justice you want. I seem to recall that you were late with your paper the last time. If you insist on justice, you will certainly get it. I'll not only give you an F for this assignment, but I'll change your last grade to the F you so richly deserved. The student was stunned. He had no more arguments to make. He apologized for being so hasty and was suddenly happy to settle for one instead of two. And listen to how he summarizes this account. The students had quickly taken my mercy for granted. They assumed it. When justice suddenly fell, they were unprepared for it. It came as a shock and they were outraged. This after only two doses of mercy in the space of two months. He continues, the normal activity of God involves far more mercy than I had showed those students with their term papers. Old Testament history covers hundreds of years. In that time, God was repeatedly merciful. When his divine judgment fell on Uzzah, the response was shock and outrage. We have come to expect God to be merciful. Does that describe you? We have come to expect God to be merciful. From there, the next step is easy. We demand it. When it is not forthcoming, our first response is anger against God, coupled with the protest. It isn't fair. We soon forget that with our first sin, we have forfeited all rights to the gift of life. That I am drawing breath this morning is an act of divine mercy. God owes me nothing. I owe him everything. If he allows a tower to fall on my head this afternoon, I cannot claim injustice. That's helpful, isn't it? We, we get a dose of mercy from God. We get a little bit more mercy. We get a little bit more mercy. And all of a sudden we expect it. Then we demand it. God is not obligated to show mercy. Praise God he is loving. Praise God he is gracious. Praise God he is merciful. Praise God, truly. But maybe you've heard the term, familiarity breeds contempt. How many of us have gotten too familiar, too comfortable with the mercy of God where we are no longer surprised by mercy, but instead we take it for granted? 2 Samuel 6 is a wake-up call for us. We want to ask, uh, why did God strike us a dead? But the right question is, why hasn't he stricken all of us dead for our many, many, many sins? We, we 
so quickly forget that even one sin, even the smallest sin, is worthy of eternal punishment. It's not because God is harsh, but because God is so holy. It's been pointed out by theologians that that all sin against God is an infinite sin because it's a sin against an infinite God. The the problem isn't just the offense, it's, it's the honor and the holiness of the one offended. I mean, you get this. It's, it's one thing to say something disrespectful to your sibling, but if you were to say that same thing to your parent, that's not okay. And take that up a billion, trillion, infinite times. That's what it's like when we sin against God. God's holiness demands reverence. It requires punishment. But the last humbling truth about God's holiness is also that it produces fear. God's holiness produces fear. Let's get back to 2 Samuel 6 and look at how this section finishes. Look at verse 8. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. It says here that David was initially angry. Didn't we just talk about that? When you take God's mercy for granted and he withholds his mercy and he gives justice instead, we often respond with outrage, with with anger. It isn't fair. David started out angry. God, uh, God had done something wrong in David's mind. That God had been harsh. David was used to his mercy and he was angered by this display of God's justice. But then his anger quickly turned into fear. Into fear. And, and, And fear was in many ways very appropriate. So David asked the question, if if Uzzah was killed on the spot for touching the ark, oh, with good intentions, Uzzah, Uzzah was, had good intentions before the Lord, he wanted to honor the Lord, and he reached out and touched the ark. And if that was punishable by death, David said, I can't bring the ark of God home to me. I can't do that. And so David canceled the mission. This is supposed to be a, a celebration to bring the ark into Jerusalem. They're going to worship God there in, in the center of all Israel, in the capital. And now David says, we can't do it. It's too dangerous. It is too dangerous. And so he canceled the mission. And instead, he, he dropped off the ark at the house of the nearest Levite, a man by the name of Obed-Edom. And we're going to see what happens to Obed-Edom tomorrow. We're going to see what happens to him. I mean, if, I'd be nervous. If he had young kids, I'd be very nervous because I know what it's like. Tell my kids, don't touch something. Guess what they're doing? Can't get their grubby hands off it. <laughs> teasing you guys. So he drops off at Obed-Edom's house, and we'll see what happens to Obed-Edom tomorrow. But for tonight, I want to let this sit upon your hearts for a little bit. God's holiness demands reverence. God's holiness requires punishment, and God's holiness produces fear. God's holiness produces fear. Do you fear God? Do you fear God? Now, now I'm not not saying you should be terrified of him in a way that drives you away from God. And and, and to be fair, I, I think here David 
may have actually been terrified of God's presence in an unhealthy way, in a wrong way. God, uh, David was terrified of the presence of God. And that's not what we're looking for. The goal is not to be terrified from him where you run from him, but instead there, there is to be a fear. There is to be a fear that is healthy before God where we want to draw near to him, but because we understand he's so holy, because we love him so much that there is a fear of disappointing him. There's a fear of dishonoring him. That's the fear here. You know, in, in Exodus 20, when God gave the 10 commandments, do you guys know how God gave the 10 commandments to Israel? Anybody know? He, he spoke on the mountain, on Mount Sinai, but does anybody know what was happening to the mountain? Was it, was it like birds chirping and sunlight and just like frolicking in the meadows kind of an environment? Anybody know? Thunder. What else? Lightning. Lightning. Yeah, those go together. <laughs> what else? Earthquake. What else? Perhaps. Perhaps. Huh? Darkness. What else? Huh? Bad weather. So, I mean, you know, sometimes we read these things and we don't think anything of it, but have you ever been through an earthquake? Like a, like a big earthquake. Mountains are supposed to be these like big immovable things, but you've got this mountain shaking. You've got darkness, you've got lightning, you've got fire, you've got darkness. There's a, there's a loud trumpet sound, it says, this loud sound. And, and by the way, I mean, here in California, we hardly get rain, we hardly get thunder. I lived in Florida for a while where there was thunder every day in the afternoon in the summer. Lightning and thunder every day in the afternoon in the summer. And sometimes it would catch you off guard. There would be one striking so close to you that, you know, usually you see the lightning and then a few seconds later you hear the thunder, right? And, and it was far enough away. It's just really just kind of this faint sound. But, but there were a couple times where it struck so close to where I was that it was immediate and it shook the house and the sound was so loud. I mean, an otherwise very brave man was shaken to the core. Why, why, why do you laugh? God was giving them the law in the midst of this terrifying experience. And, and listen to what it says in Exodus 20, verse 18. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain shaking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. They were like, if God speaks, we are just going to die and melt away. And Moses said to the people, listen, this is so interesting. Moses said to the people, do not fear. For God has come to test you. So that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. He said, don't fear. God has come to test you so that you would fear him. Don't fear. God wants you to fear so that you would not sin. God wants to protect you from becoming too casual, from, from taking him for granted, from, from domesticating him. Like the difference between a lion and a house cat. You guys know the difference? Again, I, I, I believe God created lions in the garden and then the fall happened and they all degenerated into house cats. So house cats are just evil. Any cat people out there? I'll pray for your repentance. <laughs> so the difference between a house cat, like, oh, it's a house cat. It's got some claws, but whatever. A lion? 
very different. A lion is very different. God does not want us to domesticate him into some house cat. God is a lion of lions. God wants us to fear so that we would not sin. Not fear him in a way that we were terrified and run from him, but in a way that we draw near, but we are so desirous of honoring him. He doesn't want us to be too casual with him. Yes, there's love. Yes, there's intimacy, but it should never breed contempt. God wants to protect us from that, from becoming overly familiar with him, from taking him for granted. And so friends, I want to ask you tonight, do you understand that God is holy, holy, holy? Do you understand that God demands reverence, that God, his holiness requires punishment when we sin against him, and that God's holiness should produce fear? Again, there's joy in the Lord. Don't get me wrong. There's joy, but there ought to be a holy fear in our hearts before God, a fear of displeasing him, a fear of sinning against him because we know, we know who he is. So friend, I want to ask you, do you underestimate God? Do you underestimate God? Do you understand that he is holy? Because before you can appreciate his mercy, before you can appreciate his grace, you must tremble before his holiness. Otherwise, you'll take him for granted. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for time and your word tonight. God, we thank you that your word, your word gives us a perfect picture of who you are. And that you've given us passages of comfort and, and peace and assurance. And you've also given us your scriptures that Remind us of your holiness that we might fear you. Lord, I pray that you would help us to not trifle with you, to not take you too casually, but instead that there would be a holy fear in our hearts because we recognize your holiness and your greatness. God, help us, help us to humble our hearts before you. Help us to see you as you are through your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.